0: The next episode of the podcast is the 30th episode. Oh my goodness. I cannot believe it. 30 episodes. That's like 25 hours or so of talking about self-illusion interviewing experts. And I want you to know that I wrote a book about all of this. And then I wrote another book and the other book is coming out in paperback on August 5th. It's available everywhere. Books are sold and you can pre-order it right now. That is unless you're in the future. And that means that you can just regular order it and If you want to hear excerpts from the book, I've done a couple episodes that did excerpts. Uh, You can go back to 23, 18, and 15 and listen to me read directly from the book and try to make it fun and interesting. And I'm going to read another excerpt right now. And if you don't want to hear this, you just want to get right into the show, just skip ahead 12 seconds. So here we go. An excerpt from You Are Now Less Dumb. My friend, Devin Laird, was brushing his teeth one morning. When out of the corner of his eye he noticed his living room ceiling give birth to a large adult naked man august 5th paperback pre-order now available everywhere on with the show <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 29.
1: Would you? <laughs> it might be interesting to judge people today by the color of their eyes. Would you like to try this? Yeah! Sounds like fun, doesn't it? Since I'm the teacher and I have blue eyes, I think maybe the blue-eyed people should be on top the first day. up here? Up here. I mean, the blue-eyed people are the better people in this room. Well, hello. Oh, yes, they are. Mm.
0: It's 1970, and... Jane Elliott is performing an experiment for the third time. The first time was in 1968, the day after Martin Luther King was murdered.
1: The brown eyed people do not get to use the drinking fountain. You'll have to use the paper cups. You brown eyed people are not to play with the blue eyed people on the playground because you are not.
0: What you're listening to is a frontline documentary, and you can. Go watch it now. It's really, it's really amazing. It's called A Class Divided. It's free, it's online. You can watch the whole thing. And what they did is they took these students and they had them years later watch themselves do these things. And it's stunning to watch because people are, they want to laugh at first and you want to laugh at first. And then you start to feel that like cold, hollow um, tears welling up oh my God, this is really working very quickly feeling of how Elliot was able to create this strange, segregated world just by explaining to these children that brown-eyed kids um, have melanin and melanin makes you stupid.
1: Who goes first to lunch? The blue-eyed people. No brown-eyed people go back for seconds. Blue-eyed people may go back for seconds. Brown-eyed people know, do not. Brown-eyed. Don't you know? Oh, they're not smart. Is that the I'm only reason? It'll take it'll take much. Much. It might take
0: too much. Oh, <laughs> Over the course of the day, the blue-eyed kids bullied the brown-eyed kids. They called them names. They punched them. They blamed every awkward moment and mistake on the fact that their eyes were brown and they took credit for every success on account of the fact that their own eyes were blue and... They even performed better on tests than did the same kids in the same class, different only in eye color. But the next day, all that changed.
1: I told you that brown eyed people aren't as good as blue eyed people. That wasn't true. I lied to you yesterday. The truth is that brown eyed people are better than blue eyed people. Russell, where are your glasses? I forgot them. You forgot them, and what color are your eyes?
0: Blue. <laughs> this experiment, of course, received national attention when she originally did it in 1968. That's why they made this documentary in 1970, and why Frontline returned in 1986 to bring those kids back as adults and look at themselves and think about it and talk about it. And they had a chance to interview the teacher, Jane Elliott. And the reason it became very popular was because these children wrote essays uh, and they were reprinted in the newspaper. And the essays were all about what discrimination felt like. In the 1986 Frontline piece, Jan Elliott explains why she did this. And I'll have a link to the entire thing at the website, but listen to her in her own words.
1: On the day after Martin Luther King was killed, One of my students came into the room and said they shot a king last night, Mrs. Elliott. Why'd they shoot that king? I knew the night before that it was time to deal with this in a concrete way, not just talk about it, because we had talked about racism since the first day of school. But the shooting of Martin Luther King, who had been one of our heroes of the month in February, could not just be talked about and explained away. There was no way to explain this to little third graders in Riceville, Iowa. As I listened to the white male commentators, on TV the night before, I was hearing things like, who's going to hold your people together as they interviewed black leaders? Uh, What are they going to do? Uh, Who's going to control your people? As though this was, these people were subhuman and someone was going to have to step in there and control them. They said things like, when we lost our leader, his widow helped to hold us together. Who's going to hold them together? And the attitude was so arrogant and so condescending and so ungodly that I thought if white male adults react this way, what are my third graders going to do? How are they going to react to this thing?
0: Consider for a moment that she created those labels that day and those kids took to those labels immediately. And think about the labels that we live with from day one in our lives and the labels that have been around in our cultures for decades or longer. There was a study conducted in 2004 by uh, Eberhardt and Purdy and Goff and Davies. And the name of the study is seeing black race, crime, and visual processing. And in the study, what they did is they, they had people, students, look at images and mixed in with those images were flashes of white faces or black faces the flashes went by so quickly that it was impossible to process. And even when they asked the people later, they did not know that they had seen faces. And then after they look at those faces, they showed these subjects sort of a staticky image. And within that static, the picture of a gun would slowly emerge. It would sort of come into focus within the static and they measured how quickly did the subjects recognize that within that static there was a gun coming into focus on average. If they had seen these subliminal images of white faces, they would recognize the gun within 26 frames. If they had been primed with black faces, they would see the gun within 19. Psychologist Keith Payne in 2001 conducted an experiment in which he had people look at either a white face or a black face right before looking at something that, could be considered either a weapon or a tool, like a hammer or a pair of scissors. And then he had people try to answer as quickly as possible whether or not the image they were looking at was either a weapon or a tool. And if they had just recently seen a black face, they were much more likely to see something that could be seen as either as definitely a weapon. Our guest today, Adam Alter, is a psychologist, and he wrote a book about all of this about these invisible forces, these labels that we take to very quickly and that we use to understand the world as shorthands for thinking deeply. And he explains that they have a great effect on us. They can be very dangerous. In fact, the darker your skin tone, the harsher sentence you will receive for the same crime as someone with a lighter skin tone. Even when both people are black, the darker their skin color the harsher the penalty. And the evidence is very clear on this. Yet the people who hand down those sentences are unaware that they're being affected in that way. Just like the people in the studies, when you ask them later, they had no idea that they were being affected by the images. Sometimes they didn't even know they had seen those images. That's how important labels are. That's how powerful they are. They're invisible and they affect us unconsciously and we should know about them. We should understand the science behind them. But things aren't hopeless. Psychology has also shown that these things can be undone. This is not just how we are. And Adam Alter will say in a moment that that's obvious. And you can see it in all sorts of places. And you can also see it in Elliot's study. Because after it was all over, she explained exactly what was happening, why it was happening. And she had the kids tear off the collar she'd given them. They'd, she'd given them brown or blue collars to wear so that they could see whether or not they had brown or blue eyes from a distance. She had those kids tear them off, and then the kids rushed back together, and it was wonderful.
1: Okay, now let's all sit down here together blue eyes and brown eyes. Does yeah. it make any difference what color you are? No. No. Down, girl. <laughs> now are you back? Yes. Yeah. Does yeah. that feel better? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Does cool. the color of eyes that you have make any difference in the kind of person you no, are? No. Yeah. Does that feel like being home again, girls? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, cool. Stop it. <laughs> I had a
0: sociology professor tell me once, her name is Dr. Ruth. She said that The reason it's important to understand labels and to study them is because when a person is labeled, that person tends to fulfill that label. So what do labels mean and how do they work? Well, that's what we're going to talk about today on the You Are Not So Smart podcast. My name is David McCraney, and I will be your host. On each episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast, we explore another topic in the realm of self-delusion, and then we interview an expert on that topic. This episode is all about labels, and our expert is Adam Alter, who wrote a book called Drunk Tank Pink, which is all about the symbols and labels, and even the colors that we paint the rooms in which we do our work, and the way we decorate ourselves and our cubicles, all those things come together to unconsciously affect the way we think, feel, and behave. And we'll explain what that means in a second. But before we get to that, on the topic of labeling, I went to the You Are Not So Smart Facebook page and I asked people there if they could tell me about times in their lives in which they had been labeled and whether or not it was a positive or negative uh, experience. And so you can go to the the Facebook page. It's just Facebook.com slash you are not so smart. And I try to do this pretty often. I'm trying to get better at communicating with the audience there in this way in uh in advance of these podcasts. And so let me read a couple of these uh answers to you and see what you think. Uh Kyle Taylor said that he believes the importance of symbols in our cognition can never be understated. But if it comes to people, they turn into labels. And that paints the way we see each other. In many cases the way we see ourselves. So he wants to know more about that, and believe me, that's what we're going to talk about in the the podcast today. John Padilla said that there are lots of labels that are based on race, and that opens up so many problems. And although uh, he finds it somewhat amusing being Hispanic, and both of his parents are from Puerto Rico, and he tells people that, he, they tell him in back, you don't look Spanish. And that one makes him wonder, quote, well, how should I look? Tammy Harvey, she wrote that labels can be positive if they're used constructively, that she works in social services and she's worked in those things for years. And whenever they look at labels and she says she always writes them in lowercase on purpose, she thinks of them as a diagnosis or a clue as to how to help an individual or help solve a situation. Sage Hopkins said that he is so tired of um, people labeling themselves as libertarian or liberal or whatever. He says all it does in his opinion is make uh, debate very difficult or or in his mind maybe even useless because immediately once you find out what someone uh, is labeled as or what they self-label as when it comes to politics, that's when you start that in-group, out-group tribalism stuff that gets us all into trouble on social media. The uh, Lyneth Caldwell, she says that uh, she is a housewife. She is a work-at-home mom and that she, yes, she is both of these, but she doesn't identify with the connotations that come along with that passive submissive downtrodden or thick. And people think of all of these things when she explains to them that she is a housewife or a a work at home mom. She says, I'm also a woman, but not your version of a woman. I'm my version of me being a woman. And Jennifer Clowers, we'll let her close this out. Uh, she says that she uses labels to persuade her children. She says that if she needs them to do things, she has four boys. Their ages 10 to three. And she wants them to behave very, very well. She will mention things about their personalities that will encourage them to, uh, behave well to match the expectations that the labels she's put on them, um, suggests. So she's, will tell her three-year-old that even when he's not being this way, that she's noticing he's being very helpful. And, uh, she will tell her eight-year-old who does not like going to school that he's a great student or very helpful. And, um, she finds that they tend to fulfill those labels. For instance, when she tells her oldest child he's being patient and understanding with her three-year-old and she thanks him, he becomes more patient and understanding with him. So thank you everyone for uh, for participating in that. We're going to discuss all these things with our guest today, Adam Alter, who is a psychologist. He is a professor of marketing and psychology at the New York University's Stern School of Business. He studies things like decision-making and judgment, and of course, the way we're affected by marketing. And He's written this great book called Drunk Tank Pink, which has become a New York Times bestseller. We're going to pick his brain right now. So, uh, Adam, you know I have to get this out of the way. I know you probably answered this uh, 1,055 times. (laughs) What does Drunk Tank Pink mean?
2: Yeah, it's it's a strange title and uh, people often struggle to remember what those three words are. I've had a lot of variations that are inaccurate but once you know what it means I think it's slightly easier to remember. It's a a bright bubblegummy shade of pink and it's the color that psychologists decided to paint the inside of certain jail cells in the late 70s and early 80s. They basically discovered that this very bright bubblegummy pink was very effective at calming people down and so if you took a very aggressive prisoner in a jail put them inside the cell for fifteen minutes or so they calmed down a lot they were much more compliant and malleable and better behaved and uh, it ended up being used in all sorts of different settings so uh, it, some some schools painted this their classrooms with the same bright pink color uh... my favorite application though was a, a football coach at iowa who decided to paint the visiting locker room the same color so <laughs> whenever whenever his opponents would go in for half time uh, they would basically go in there, and he, he claimed that they were always much weaker after the half because they'd been sitting in this room. You know, they, The coach was trying to motivate them, but they, they came out much sleepier because they were surrounded by this bright bubblegummy pink color.
0: And I think you're right. They had
2: to change the rules after that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, the rules now state that if you're going to paint one cell – one cell. If you're going to paint one of the locker rooms this bright pink color, you have to paint the other one the same color. You have to standardize – home and visiting locker rooms, which I think is a good (laughs) idea. I should say the reason I chose this for the title is because the book is basically about how things in the world around us, including color, uh, but not limited to color, shape how we think, feel, and behave. And a a lot of these effects, I think, are quite surprising, either because they exist at all, but others are surprising because of just how strong they are. So for me, this particular effect was striking, just because the idea that you could paint a room a particular color and change dramatically how people inside it behaved was pretty surprising.
0: Yeah, and, do you, and why do you think that this um, this uh, pink color effect works?
2: Well, I think, first of all, I should say I'm, I'm skeptical about a lot of things, and I'm skeptical about ha- just how powerful and robust this effect is. So there's, there's quite a lot of evidence that it does calm people down. Uh, there is some evidence that it's a little bit shaky at times, and one of the pieces of evidence, for example, suggests that there's a backlash effect after about 15 minutes if you leave people in the room sometimes they become even more aggressive, so you've got to be very careful with the timing. Um, and that suggests part of what might be going on, that, that people are initially shocked by the color. Uh, it's, a, it's an incredibly bright, assaulting color when you see it, and in, in, especially when a whole room is painted with it. Uh, there, there are a couple of possible explanations for why this is happening. One, I think, is, is based purely on association. The idea is that a lot of the people who are calmed by this color tend to be aggressive, and they're often men, and this color in our society is associated strongly with femininity, and so one of the ideas is that this color primes them or reminds them of the the differences between their current state and what they associate with femininity. Um, so that's just a purely associative account. It sort of primes them to think a little bit more um, in a more relaxed way.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, that's that's why. Yeah, sorry, I could carry on if you had a question.
0: Oh no, no, I was just I was just going to mention that you know color is such a is so charged with meaning and in every culture, you know, it varies from culture to culture. And it, when you, when I read about, when I read about the, the pink walls, I thought about how, how it's just a really large moment in most people's lives, choosing what color to paint their, their baby's room. Right. Right. And it's why it's a big, decision because of this associative architecture of our minds, this, you know, the, sem- this semantic net around every little thing, just not just words, but colors For, in your research. What, what have you found when it comes to like painting babies' rooms or maybe offices or, uh, workplaces? What is the, what is psychology recommending that we do with these colors?
2: Well, there's a fantastic irony, which is that I get emails all the time asking me that question. What color should I paint my daughter or son's room? And I'm colorblind, so there's there's the <laughs> irony that I I've written all about this color pink um, and various other colors, and I can't actually see them myself. So I try to I try to give very light-handed suggestions, and I I, I think it's it's really dangerous to paint a room this color. I think partly it's dangerous because of the backlash effect, but also. There's something really sinister about this sort of behavioural engineering when it comes to mm. your kids, especially long-term. As you say, this is a big decision. It's not like they're going to be in a pink room for 10 minutes while they calm down after a tantrum. This is the room that they'll spend hours in. Um, so, you know, I, I say, I, I generally suggest that going for something more neutral is probably a better idea. I think neutral colours make a lot of sense, just because they don't, they don't impose on our thinking and feeling and behaving quite as strongly as very strong, powerful colors do. And so I'm usually an advocate for those so that they function more as background colors rather than actually changing much of how we think, feel, and behave. Mm -hmm. Now, that's certainly true of something like a bedroom. I don't know that that's true necessarily of a workspace. So there is a lot of evidence that certain colors change how you think they either make you a little bit sharper and more vigilant they make you a little bit more careful in your thinking and other colors seem to make people a little bit more expansive to think a little bit more abstractly more broadly more creatively um so red t- seems to make people a little more focused blue a little bit more broad broad thinking and um lateral thinking and so there if you want to have small dabs of those colors in areas that are strategic that help you think in those particular ways depending on what you do at work. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Mm-hmm. But painting a baby's room bright pink I think is a pretty extreme move. And you you
0: write about how it's not just colors but um, even our very uh, names uh, and the names of other people greatly affect the way we think and feel and behave. Um, you mentioned nominative determinism. Could you kind of briefly go into what that is?
2: Yeah, it's this great term. It was coined by a reader of the New Scientist magazine in 1994 – there was a, a short story in the magazine, and the story was about two doctors who practiced urology. They were urological surgeons, and their, their names were Dr. Splat and Dr. Whedon. <laughs> and so the, the writer of this column said, that's really strange. You know, their names seem to map perfectly onto exactly what they do with their lives, onto their occupations. And one of the readers wrote in and said, you know, based on the Latin, we should call this nominative determinism. Nominative meaning name and determinism meaning determining the outcome. And so this term basically means that your name shapes shapes to some extent your outcomes, your destiny. And I think in its extreme form, you get cases like Usain Bolt, who has the name Bolt and is also the fastest person in the world. Now, obviously, as scientists, we question... Whether Usain Bolt would have been a slower runner with a different name, it's not really clear that that's true. But there are a surprising number of these. They're, they're called apotyonyms. Mm, you that can word. actually, yeah, it's a it's a terrific word. And if you go on Wikipedia, there's a long, an incredibly long, surprisingly long list of these, where you find people like, um, you know, Australia's champion surfer for many years was Lane Beachley. Uh, one of the great footballers was named Derek Kickett. Now there there are just these these terrific examples and there are so many more of them
0: yeah and like you i'm a little i'm a skeptical of it in a way because you know it's it, it sort of um it uh makes you think about confirmation bias and that we're just looking for things that match their expectations but you do write about how uh even if broadly speaking non-determinism has a small effect there are lots of ways in which that really does affect people's lives like could you uh explain about how um, if you're a lawyer, this could really change uh, the path of your career, the way uh, your name is spelled and pronounced.
2: Yeah, sure. So the examples I just talked about were cases where there's, there's some meaning in the name that then maps onto the outcome. So kick it for a football player, obviously there's, there's some, some meaning overlap there. But I think where this becomes a much more powerful effect, and this is what I study a lot myself with some of my colleagues, in particular Danny Oppenheimer at uh, UCLA now, uh, is, is to look at how easy it is to pronounce the name. And that's the effect that you're referring to there. So we basically, I did some research with actually some some researchers in Australia as well, looking at how quickly people progress up the legal hierarchy, how quickly they become partners in law firms. And what we found was that if you control for things like ethnicity and gender, what you find is that people with simpler names, with names that are easier to pronounce, become partners in law firms more quickly, quite a lot more quickly, actually. Mm -hmm. That's in, that's
0: insane.
2: <laughs> it's it's crazy. And the reason I think it's particularly crazy is because you can imagine, you know, the first day you meet a lawyer, the only thing you know about them really is, it's, say it's a young lawyer and you're a partner and you're trying to pick people for a new team that you're putting together and you meet the lawyer. You don't know much. You know, maybe, maybe you've seen the person's CV. You talk to them a little bit. The name might be a reasonably important cue. If you can pronounce the name, you know, there's less social anxiety and that's a good thing. But the idea that 15 years down the track, there are differences based on that name, that's striking because Mm -hmm. it suggests it's, first of all, it's very worrying because it suggests that these effects persist for a very long time. But it's also just striking how powerful these cues are and how much they shape really important world outcomes. Yeah. And
0: that's, I want to spend the rest of our time kind of digging into that. And because a lot of the book is about association and expectation and how it's you know, it's involuntary and it's automatic and it's really invisible. And I really like the way you introduce this. uh, There's a section on labeling and you talk about how the Russian language has a common word for light blue and the English language really, really doesn't, not a common word. And it drastically affects the way people with brains that were shaped by those two different languages see the world differently. Could you kind of go into a little detail about those color experiments?
2: Yeah, it's it's, uh, it's a phenomenal experiment by Lira Boroditsky and her colleagues. She's at Stanford. And Basically, what they do is they look at how having a name for a particular object or concept is very important in shaping how we perceive it and how quickly we perceive it and recognize it. So in, in English, as you said, we have one one word that's blue, and that's a single label for a whole lot of different kinds of blues. I mean, you go all the way from sky blue to a very rich navy blue to a, an almost midnight blue. And for us in English speakers, there's just one word for that. In Russia, there were two separate words, and there is a point on the spectrum where light blue becomes dark blue, where the one word becomes the other word, and so they have two separate labels for a concept that we in English only have one label for.
0: Mm-hmm. And, so, and just to, to help people listening to this, if you can imagine as we were talking about pink, like uh, you can imagine a culture would just call that light red, but then in our culture, we could we call it, we have a specific word for pink versus red, and Russian has a specific word for light blue versus dark blue. I'm sorry, just go ahead.
2: No, no, that's a that's a very helpful analogy. That's exactly right and it puts it it shows what it would be like in the reverse. And so they they have these two different labels and what that means is that when we in English are trying to decide whether a color is light blue or dark blue, it takes us a little bit longer because we don't have a ready label for it. We can't just pick a label out of our heads. Whereas imagine seeing red or pink, you instantly know that that's either red or pink if you can see color. So Um, What they found basically is that when you're asking people to distinguish between two very similar shades of blue, if one of them happens to lie on the light blue side with the one label and the other happens to lie on the dark blue side with the other linguistic label, Russians are very quick to make that judgment. They can tell you very quickly it's one or the other and they can tell you which one's lighter or darker and they can also match it to a third square of blue that's either one of the colors or the other. So they basically, what that shows is this label gives them the ability to distinguish between these colors very quickly. Their mental universe has a concept for each of them and a separate concept for each of them, which makes it very easy to do that. We in English really struggle with that task because for us, these are just two blues that look extremely similar. One is a sort of middle blue and the other is a slightly darker middle blue, but they're both middle blue and we don't really have a ready name for them. And so we are not good at those tasks. And it, basically, what this the study shows is that everything, even the most basic things like perceiving color, we're not even talking about looking at other people or animals or you know higher order concepts, but even something as basic as a color, the way we perceive that, how quickly we can distinguish it from others, is determined by the labels that we use.
0: Yeah, and that is, <laughs> I mean, I remember you know, well, I guess we could just briefly mention you know, there's this Whorfian hypothesis, which is you know that language affects thought and uh, and and perception and um it's obviously true i mean you you talk about bridges uh you know to a spanish speaker versus a german speaker are either feminine or masculine and Mm -hmm. and so therefore you think of them and describe them in terms of masculinity or femininity what femininity whatever that means in your particular culture yes and um for these uh Russian speakers and English speakers, the, the reality that they, uh, you know, deal with on a day-to-day basis is we have to assume that subjectively it is different based simply on the way that their brains were nurtured by the language that they learned over the course of their lives.
2: Yeah, it's actually, the Wolfian hypothesis is is fascinating and very contentious. A lot of linguists don't, don't endorse it, and there are lots of different versions of it, so there are some very strong versions which suggest that our mental universes are completely different. We live a completely different life because we use one language rather than another. And that's uh, mostly out of favor now with linguists. I think they don't think that the strong version is quite true. There are weaker versions, though, and I certainly endorse the weaker versions to the extent that they suggest that what we see, how quickly we see it, the way we perceive specific things can be tweaked slightly by the language that we use. And so that's I think that study that you mentioned with the the Russian blues, the light blues and the dark blues is a terrific example of that.
0: Mm-hmm. And in uh, the the uh, blue, different colors of um, different shades of blue study, you, you write about how if you mess with uh, the subject's language processing abilities, it also affects the way that they are able to see the different colors of blue, correct?
2: Yes, that's right. Yeah. So a lot of what's going on is, is this relationship between what you're seeing and how it in- instantly inspires some sort of linguistic cue or language uh, or, or name or label. And so if you mess with the ability to do that, if you make it hard for people to do that, then you don't see these effects anymore. So it really is about this mapping between the color and the language.
0: And you write that labels don't merely – is these are your, your words – labels labels don't merely function as placeholders. They craft the images that populate our thoughts. And that leads to one of my favorite topics in all of psychology, which is the, uh, the halo effect, which is um, your book was great in helping me sort of bridge um, – that semantic net uh, associative architecture stuff over to the uh, halo effect and how the two are are shaking hands. Could you sort of um, help people listening understand what we're talking about through the, uh, the Hannah study?
2: Yeah, sure. Um, So the Hannah study is an absolute, absolute classic study. It was actually run by John Darley uh, and one of his students in the, the early 80s. John Darley was one of my advisors and he is one of the great social psychologists of the 20th century and the 21st as well. And basically the study was designed to get a sense of how important very basic labels are in shaping what we see. So if you see the same thing, you see a person behaving the same way, will the labels that you have to describe them change how you perceive that behavior? So what they did was they had a girl named Hannah, and there were two different versions of what people were watching. They're watching a girl in the one version who's quite middle class, maybe middle to upper class. You learn that her parents are... University educated, they're both professionals. Uh, they make a reasonable income. Uh, she's going to a pretty good school, and you can see her skipping along at this school. You're basically watching a video of a, a fairly wealthy child from a wealthy family. Mm-hmm. In the other example, in the other case, the other people saw a slightly different video. This Hannah was watching w- was skipping along, but she was outside of a much poorer school. The school was a bit run down Her parents were blue collar workers who had never gone to college. They had a much lower income. And then what happens is, having seen either one version of Hannah or the other version, they all watched the same video of Hannah try to complete some mental puzzles. Some of the mental puzzles are really difficult, and some of them are really easy. And Hannah's – they're trying to get a sense of how smart Hannah is. And it's tricky to do because she, she's – you know, the way they crafted it, she is deliberately – answering the questions that they deliberately crafted it so she's answering difficult questions correctly but the easy questions incorrectly so that's really ambiguous it's hard to work out is she a smart student is she struggling and what happens is the halo that, that is formed by what you see first whether you see her skipping outside a really nice school or a not so nice school ends up shaping your interpretation of how how intelligent she is the people who've seen her skipping outside the nice school and they they think that her parents are well educated and earning quite a good income assume that she's a smart student even though she's answered a lot of the easy questions incorrectly the other students the, the other participants who are watching her in a, a much poorer neighborhood they know that she's from a working class background assume that she's not very intelligent they focus much more on the questions she gets wrong than the questions she gets right mm-hmm. and so this this initial halo that's formed by the information that people get early on at first ends up doing a lot of, of work in shaping what people interpret subsequently from ambiguous feedback. So it's it's a very powerful effect, and it suggests that these labels we have like educated, uh, high-income versus working-class, poor, less educated, end up shaping how we see even the same things. We think that we're seeing objective evidence, but what we're really seeing is evidence that can be crafted and shaped and interpreted differently by by these lenses that we bring to bear on, on those pieces of evidence.
0: Mm-hmm. And in those studies, what always uh, bothers me or, or gives me pause is the idea that i imagine that most people if you never debrief them they would live the rest of their lives believing that they had been objective
2: and absolutely
0: mm-hmm.
2: oh absolutely i agree with that and i think that's what we're doing every day at all points during the day every time you meet someone you if you know anything about them that's either serving as a halo or i, I guess whatever the opposite would be it's it's a. Uh, It's basically downgrading everything you see and everything you learn about them subsequently. Mm -hmm. And that's that's also why first impressions of of people are so critical because they either form halos or they mean that everything else you see subsequently will be interpreted through a negative lens, a critical lens. Mm -hmm. And um,
0: you write that this effect, it can be generated through suggestion and expectation by accepting someone else's label for a thing before you've had a chance to evaluate it on your own, not just this ambiguity thing, but if someone specifically says, uh, well, like you write about the academic bloomers, um, Mm -hmm. go, could you mention, could you briefly explain what the academic bloomers study was?
2: Yeah, it's a great study from the 1960s run at a school in uh, San Francisco and students were basically arbitrarily split, randomly split into two groups. One group got this label bloomers, they were called academic bloomers and they were people who were supposed to do well in the, in the coming year and the other group was not given this label and there was no real reason why they were split into one group or the other, it was totally randomly done and then the, they were split into two separate classes for the coming academic year and the teachers who were teaching the class of bloomers were told you should know that you have some very st- special students under your care they are expected to do extremely well at the end of this year And uh, they've been identified as academic bloomers, as hot academic prospects. And the other teachers in the other classes were not told anything. Now, keep in mind that the average IQ, the average ability was no different between these bloomers and non-bloomers. They were chosen randomly. There was no systematic difference between them at the beginning of the year. By the end of the year, the people who had been described as academic bloomers had IQ scores of 10 to 15 points higher Mm. on various tests. So this this is where the term self-fulfilling prophecy comes from. The idea that you can create an outcome just by describing it ahead of time as uh, even if it's not true, as being in that way. And that, that's basically what happens in this is this classic study. And the idea is that this, these teachers, you could imagine them doing lots of things during the year, Um, and we can go back to the Hannah study where this ambiguous evidence is interpreted according to whatever pre-existing beliefs people had. Mm -hmm. you could imagine a teacher who sees a student who is described as an academic bloomer if the student does one thing really well let's say the student writes a really good essay but then does very poorly on a math test the teacher says to him or herself you know i think the writing ability is the true measure of this person's capacity and that's that's where the bloomer the, the bloomer is shining through basically But the fact that this person can't do math, it could have been a bad day. Maybe they're just not a mathematician. Maybe that's just the way things are. Mm. And so they keep forgetting the evidence that goes against the term bloomer. And they keep remembering and building on the evidence that suggests that this person is blooming. They give them more attention. They shower them with praise. And in the end, this group of students actually does better because they get slightly more attention. They get slightly more praise. Their confidence is raised. And and that's not happening for the other group that doesn't have this label, of bloomer.
0: (laughs) It's so... I mean it sounds so much like similar effects like like the way cold reading works and you know and you know uh, confirmation bias and other things where you in moments of ambiguity you you look for some sort of filter to help you make sense of the world and if someone hands you a filter even if you're not aware that it's been done it can mm-hmm. so totally paint the reality that you that you create and and that's that's it. that's you know interesting trivia for just discussing different psychological studies but these specific studies we've just mentioned obviously correlate to real things that happen in the world that affect people's lives their whole lives
2: absolutely uh, in every possible sphere we're talking about uh, sporting ability we're talking about academic ability we're talking about likability when you meet someone you know if you've heard something about them before that will provide you with a lens to perceive everything else that you you learn about them and, and so on I mean it's it's huge in the workplace it's a big factor in education it, it's a uh, it, it basically it shapes Almost every imaginable outcome that involves social interaction. So it's a very powerful effect,
0: and uh, that's why it's really great that books like yours um, are are bringing this to the public's attention, and the um, and hopefully will uh, help us create a better world, or at least uh, help us understand the world that we that we make. And I wanted to give you one last or pose one last question to you here about all that. One of my favorite parts of the book explains, uh, you just talk about how the color spectrum, you know, visible light mm-hmm. is just, it really, when you get down to it, it's just one continuous gradient. And we placed human meaning over that gradient by labeling portions of it. And you, you write that similarly, we human skin tone is a continuous gradient. And we've reduced that spectrum into these really broad categories that have, as you say, no basis in biology. Um, and when we label people, uh, by skin tone, um, how does that affect our psychology, and what can we do about sort of undoing how that's affected our cultures going into uh, you know the years that we have uh, going forward?
2: Yeah, it's a huge and very important question. Uh, I think it has influence in in a lot of different arenas, uh, mainly in the legal arena. A lot of a lot of it comes down to that. So there's a lot of evidence, for example, that when you when you're talking about eyewitness testimony or when people are trying to recreate an event they saw. If they believe the person they saw was black or white, they will remember them very differently. They'll remember their behaviors very differently. They will sketch them differently. Um, they may even mete out different punishments for the very same acts. So these labels, even if the person, let's say the person has one black parent and one white parent, um, if you then describe that person as a white person or a black person, it's the same individual. But very it has very different consequences for them especially in the legal domain but not just in the legal domain so it's it's incredibly damaging uh, when when we use these labels uh, there is there is no extremely easy solution um if there were i think people would would try to be, put it in into place and they it's just really a very difficult problem to solve i think one thing to do is um when I was young, when I was at school, we were basically told that there were certain labels that we shouldn't use. Now, this sounds a little bit like new speak, and it's a, you know, there's some concern with limiting the, w- the words people can use. But I think it's really important when kids are young to educate them about the power of these labels. Mm-hmm. So, one thing we were taught was you never use the word "fat." That's damaging. It's upsetting. It hurts the person who is overweight, and it's just a word that we never used. It was just something we were taught not to use, and I think it shaped how we saw the world. So we. you just stop seeing the world in terms of fat versus not fat or people in terms of fat versus not fat. And it was, I think it was a really smart idea that we were taught very early on the power of these labels. So I think a lot of this comes down to education. I think it's very hard to change how adults uh, who have been using these words for a long time, I think it's hard to change how they use them. It's hard to get them to use them less and to see them as different from how they see them now. I think with children and uh, educating people when they're still young, I think there you can certainly... Uh, bring about some change and, and improve the situation. So I, I, I think there should be more room at schools for for education about this stuff. And indeed, there is some already. I've worked with a couple of uh, of elementary schools, and I've seen that some of the the forward looking schools are doing some terrific work on that. And and the kids, as a result, are much savvier about the words they use and how powerful those words are.
0: Well. I love this topic and I love your advice. I hope that uh, we can institute these sort of changes and and just know ourselves in a way that allows us to create better institutions and better relationships and stuff. And I could obviously talk about this forever, but we have to stop. I want (laughs) to, I want to, I want, I know people are going to want to try to find you and read more about what you do and what you've uh, researched and what you're doing. So, uh, how can they find you on the internet?
2: Um, They can find me at adamalterauthor.com. That's one place they can find me uh, I've got also an NYU homepage they can find all my contact details there the book is on Amazon it's it's in a number of different bookstores so I, they should be able to find it there as well but I welcome any and all emails
0: and what are you uh, working on in the future
2: uh, I'm starting to think about my next book actually I'm not quite at the point where I can talk about it because it, it's not quite there at the you know I don't have my one minute elevator pitch but that's that's the next plan right.
0: Well, thank you so much for coming on. It's a really interesting book, and uh, I know the people that people lo- that like this podcast will love this book, so please check it out, and thank you so much.
2: Thanks so much for having me, David.
0: All the previous episodes of You Are Not So Smart are available at youarenotsosmart.com. You can just click on podcast, or you can go to boingboing.net, click on podcast there, and you not only will see all of the previous episodes of You Are Not So Smart, but you'll see the other great podcast in the Boing Boing family of podcasts, which includes, uh, I think you will like this podcast called Futility Closet, which is hosted by Greg and Sharon Ross. And it catalogs curiosities like history, language, mathematics, literature, philosophy, and art, curiosities in those realms. In the last episode, for instance, let me read a little bit about it to you from directly from their description. Uh, In 1944, fully a year before the first successful nuclear test, Astounding Science Fiction magazine published a remarkably detailed description of an atomic bomb in a story called Deadline. The story, by the otherwise undistinguished author Clive Cardmill sent military intelligence racing to discover the source of his information and his motives for publishing it. So that's an example of the kind of stuff you'll get there, and I think you'd like it. And it's just one of the the many great podcasts, like this one, in the Boing Boing family of podcasts. C Cookie starts with C Let's think of other things that starts with C uh, uh, who cares about other things C is for
2: cookie That's
0: good enough for On me. each episode of the You are not so Smart podcast I read a piece of self-delusion news or a scientific study while I eat a cookie baked from a recipe sent in by a listener or reader and then that cookie deep in my belly provides me the energy and delight that allows me to think and smile whenever I realize how deluded I really am and how wonderful psychology is when it comes to figuring that stuff out. You can send your recipes to David at youarenotsosmart.com. And if I pick and bake and eat your recipe, you will get a signed copy of the You Are Not So Smart book. I also post the recipe and the winner and photos and everything else at youarenotsosmart.com as well as the You Are Not So Smart Pinterest page, which by now, guys, has got a lot of stuff on there. I recommend you go over and check it out and find a cookie you like. This episode's winner is Carly Bell. She wrote an email and it said, I thought I would share this recipe with you for chocolate chip cookies. The twist with this recipe is that It uses coconut oil instead of butter. That's right. No butter. Instead, you replace it completely with coconut oil. And the other ingredients are sugar and brown sugar, eggs, vanilla extract, flour, baking powder, salt, chocolate chips, and toffee bits. And let me tell you, this will make everything smell amazing in your house. Oh, man. I am still just smiling everywhere I go. I'm just walking around with a little... A little bitty hop, a tiny hop, a little arch. I'm going, as I walk around my house because everything smells like coconuts and cookies and chocolate. Oh, oh, so good! And um, I'm going to taste this right now. I can tell you that um, just being in the room with it, I'm happy. So that alone should tell you how good this is going to be. Let's try it out. Here we go. Of course, let me mention my wife Amanda makes all the cookies. These were not very difficult to make. Uh, compared to other recipes, but we both agree that this is something, if you just want to make a cookie quickly and um, something that will win people over, if you want to take this to a party and have everyone afterwards say, you know what, I always liked you better than John, this is the cookie. Okay, here we go. I'm going to try it out. Here we are. Mm. Oh, okay. So, oh, such power this this is this is good the way bacon is good you know oh man the greeks would have made a statue they would have created a statue just of this cookie and it would have been like a a goddess with cookie for a head and there would have been little chocolate chips all throughout the the marble the marble would represent coconut and the, uh, the flecks of darker stone would be the chocolate chips and they would look upon that statue and they would feel like from the world of forms, the mother goddess matrix of original concepts would be delivering to them the wonder of bacon and cheese sticks and coconut chocolate chip toffee cookies with a little bit of salt. Oh, and they would bite and the gods would smile, but it is a sacrament. Feel free to email me and correct me on whether or not the Greeks had cheese sticks, but they certainly, they certainly would have wondered if there was something out there better than this, if they had had this cookie around. Oh my God. I'm taking another bite. Mm -hmm. I pray to you, goddess of things that are as good as bacon. Mm. So it's got that, mm, wow, it's got that coconutty Coconuts in every bite, chocolates in every bite, toffees in every bite. It's salty, too. And it tastes like a cookie with all that other stuff, but it's got like a crispy bottom. The way like, uh, you know, if you if you cook something on the grill. Um, yeah, or bacon. It's bacon. I don't know why. <laughs> Bacon's the first thing that comes to mind when I eat this. It's as good as bacon, but it's a cookie. Oh, wow. Okay. Oh, man. Carly Bell, thank you so much. This makes me want to go... Buy a big block of marble and some chisels and immediately get to work on my uh, my statue that will be devoted to (laughs) worshipping the goddess, the mother of all things bacon-like and delicious as cookies. Oh, so good. Thank you so much. Let's talk about some self-delusion news with this powering my brain. You may have heard recently that Facebook is in trouble with the United States government over some research they did. They partnered with Cornell and the university of California. And the name of the research is experimental evidence of massive scale, emotional contagion through social networks. And what they did is they got random, they randomly chose 700,000 people, um, on the Facebook network and they gave them either a larger dose of positive or a larger dose of negative information, uh, posts that were either more positive or more negative than usual. And then they just study what happens to, um, human behavior in that situation. So, the fact that they did this without telling anybody, um, and no one, you know, just con- consented to it or not, that was what made a lot of people upset. And that may be why the government's going to get involved with this sort of thing. And that prompted OKCupid, uh, it actually prompted, um, Christian Rudder at OKCupid to write a blog post about all this. So you can go to blog.okcupid.com. The name of the post is We Experiment on Human Beings. And he explains how OkCupid does this sort of research all the time themselves. Uh, they sometimes show people just a picture instead of the description. Uh, by the way, OkCupid is a dating website. So they sometimes show people a picture and not the description or sometimes the description and not the picture. And all sorts of other things they, they tweak and turn and mess around with to see how people react so they can uh, change or create a better website or whatever. And, uh, what I thought would be perfect for this segment of the show, this self delusion news segment is this portion of the, uh, blog post where he says that one thing that they did was, and I'm going to read directly from it. The ultimate question at OkCupid is, does this thing even work by our internal measures? The match percentage we calculate for users is very good at predicting relationships. It correlates with message success, conversation length, whether people actually exchange contact information and so on. But at the back of our minds, there's always been this possibility that maybe it only works because we tell people that it does. So what they did is that they took people who are, uh, who their algorithms tell, are, tell them are bad matches. So they say they're only about a 30% match. And they told them that they were very good matches, that they were a 90% match. So a person is uh, messing around on OkCupid and they find these people who are supposedly a 90% match, but secretly the site is actually delivering them. matches. And what happened was he writes, quote, not surprisingly, the users sent more first messages when we said they were compatible. After all, that's what the site teaches you to do. Then he writes, but we took the analysis one step deeper. We asked, does the displayed match percentage cause more than just that first message? Does the mere suggestion cause people to actually like each other? And he writes, as far as we can tell, as far as we make, as far as we can measure, yes, yes, It does. Quote, when we tell people they are a good match, they act as if they are, even when they should be wrong for each other. If you want to read more, go to blog.okcupid.com. The headline is We Experiment on Human Beings. That is it for this episode of the You're Not So Smart podcast. Head to boingboing.net for more great podcasts like this one. Head to you are not so smart.com, SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, and Swell to listen to all the previous episodes of this podcast. You can find links to everything that I talked about today at you are not so smart.com, and you can learn more about both of my books over there as well. Send your cookie recipes to David at you so Smart.com. and if I bake your cookie, I'll send you a signed copy of the book and you can follow You're Not So Smart on Twitter and Facebook. On Facebook, where You're Not So Smart. And on Twitter, we are at NotSmartBlog. I tweet at David McCraney. The background music is by Drew Garraway. And the opening music is Clash by Caravan Palace.